Hello everyone, welcome to the Wharton Impact Podcast hosted by the Wharton Social Impact Club. Together, we explore the intersection of business and meaningful impact. I am your host, Shaurya Malhotra, and today we have Ms. Julia Fish, Vice President, Sustainable and Impact Investing at Glenmead. Julia is an impact investor and strategist, providing strategic oversight of the firm's sustainable and impact investing program with a focus on ESG integration, portfolio construction, shareholder engagement, and investing in products with a thematic focus, including climate change, gender diversity, and racial equity. Join us as we discuss the differences between sustainable and impact investing, the key considerations of an impact-oriented public market strategy, and where the industry is heading in the future. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the first episode of the Wharton Impact Podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Hi, Sharia. Great to be here. So to start off, can you talk about your journey and how you picked impact investing as a career? Sure. So I have a non-traditional path into this space, like so many sustainable investors. Uh, I'm actually a triple dipper at Warden, uh, or Penn rather. So I went to Penn undergrad, international relations and French, and then returned many years later to do the dual degree at Warden and Lauder. So clearly I can't get enough of Penn, Quakers and Philly. But when I graduated from undergrad, I really pursued a path of diplomacy and development work. So I began consulting with Booz Allen Hamilton for the Department of Homeland Security, of all things. I really wanted to work for the CIA, and this felt like as close as I could get. Um, so, you know, it was a really interesting experience. Like so many warden students, consulting can be a really important building block. But I did pivot to international development pretty quickly. So I knew that I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself, just felt like that's the only way not to be motivated to jump out of bed, to be a part of a role where you feel like you're advancing the world forward for a better reason. And so I discovered an economic development NGO called TechnoServe. Uh, TechnoServe works really closely with the Gates Foundation, with USAID, with the Canadian International Development Organizations, DFID, the UK Development Organizations. And what I really liked about TechnoServe is I was able to be based in uh, Ghana initially in uh, West Africa, and then uh, also got another kind of consultancy where I was traveling across West, East, and Southern Africa. Uh, looking at agricultural and economic development. I actually learned way more about consulting with TechnoServe uh, because I was with former Bain, BCG, McKinsey consultants. I really can't recommend it highly enough. And through that experience, Sharia, I actually was embedded at a private equity firm in Johannesburg just by chance. But it was really my first foray into this idea of blended finance. The private equity firm was part of this really interesting structured um financial project where they were uh, investing in uh, farmers cooperatives, essentially, and if they could illustrate that there was technical assistance happening and skills development happening, then the PE firm could get one-to-one funding uh, and further investment from the United Nations. So that was really interesting. You know, uh, impact investing definitely has its roots in public-private partnerships and blended finance. So I always think of that as my aha moment where I realized maybe I could operate in both the development, social impact, and business lanes. 
Uh, later on, I worked for a major contractor for USAID. That's the U.S. Agency for International Development. If your listeners don't recognize that acronym, um, and it's the U.S.'s uh, agency that does all of our, our work abroad and development. Um, so the contractor I worked for was named Comonics. I was based in D.C., but I was traveling across Southeast Asia, uh, North Africa, um, I was in Indonesia, Vietnam, Pakistan, Morocco, you name it. But the through line of all these experiences in my 20s was really this idea of identifying interventions based on theories of change and measuring outcomes and impact, if possible, along the way. So, you know, towards the end of my time with Comonix and USAID, I increasingly heard references to social impact bonds, development impact bonds, impact investing. And there are all these buzzwords that, like, no one really knows what they mean if you don't have an MBA and haven't worked in business, but it sounds like it could be like, you know, uh, perhaps like the, the silver bullet that could help uh, bridge that gap in, in public sector financing. So I knew I wanted to be a part of it, but I also knew I needed an MBA for it. So Warden and Lauder were an amazing fit for me. Um, I blended the Warden MBA with specializing in Africa regional studies and then taking French twice a week, which was really perfect for me. Um, and then after graduation, I knew that I wanted to be surrounded by investment professionals. I had a warden colleague who worked for Glenmead, a Philadelphia-based boutique wealth and investment management firm. And she said, you know, we're looking for someone to join the sustainable and impact investing team, but there'll be more of a focus on public markets. And I thought, oh, I don't know, warden's been stressing private equity and venture capital, but I decided to give it a shot. And it's been really wonderful since then. I've been at Glenmead for five years. Julia, it's so inspiring to hear about your story coming from consulting to international development to public finance and finally to impact investing without the traditional background in finance. This is absolutely great to hear. And so now, traditionally, people have thought of impact investing only in the private markets. So what exactly is impact investing in the public markets? Yeah, sure. So terminology is everything in this space. So maybe I'll just start with Glenmead's terminology and how we think about this. Before I even dive in, Sharia, I just even want to back up. Glenmead, as I mentioned, is a wealth and investment management firm, $40 billion in assets under management, based in Philadelphia, but with eight other regional offices. So New York, D.C., Palm Beach, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, I could go on. You get the idea. But what's cool is that we work the range of clients. So we work with private wealth individuals family offices, endowments and foundations, as well as institutional investors. And they all have a range of thematic areas of interest and motivations, uh, and everyone's throwing words around in a different way. So often my first conversation with individuals or organizations is really education, right? So here's how Glenby thinks about impact investing. Here's how we think about sustainable investing. My title is vice president of the sustainable and impact investing team, and that's intentional that we are sustainable and impact investing. So I would argue that it's fairly challenging to identify impact investing in the public markets. It's not impossible, uh, but when we think about the word impact, you know, the, uh, which I think of as the absolute measure of tangible outcomes stemming from a specific action. It's really hard for me to tell you that, you know, your dollar in the stock market can be directly attributed to benefiting, you know, a community or individual. And that doesn't mean that there aren't, even if there are primary 
impacts. You could argue they're secondary, so we can get into that. But I really see public markets as situated for sustainable investing. I think impact investing, for better or worse, today does carry a connotation often of concession, which isn't always fair, but direct direct impact is what I think. If we're sustainable investing, I think of that as associated with sustainable outcomes. Um, so for example, when we're working in the public markets, we often say that that's best situated for sustainable investing can be complemented with private investments that are focused on impact investing. But that's kind of a, a distinction we see there. That's Glenmead's view. Um, but you know, we do, that's not to like under or dismiss rather the outcomes that you can achieve through public markets. So for example, if you're allocating capital to a thematic climate solution strategy that invests across a portfolio of, let's say, 100 companies that are all seeking to accelerate the transition to a low carbon economy. Um, you know, every single investment is really uh, allocated towards renewable energy and um, new climate technology. And that may ultimately lead to a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions over the long term. But I really try to be intentional about saying you are making an impactful investment, but this is not necessarily impact investing. I can't tell you that you are personally responsible for reducing, you know, tons of, uh, car, you know, carbon in the atmosphere. So anyway, for what it's worth, I think it's important too for Warden students just to be aware of those distinctions, um, especially in interviews when, Oftentimes investors who you're interviewing with will want to see that you're being really intentional about word choice as well. Um, so I'll pause there. I know that's a lot. And also I know that's one of specific view. No, that's helpful. And I think now since we're discussing terminologies, people also tend to use the terms ESG and impact interchangeably. Could you also tell us the differences between these two terms and Glenmead's view on these two terms? Yes, absolutely. And um, again, it's it's a lot of education, right? It's education with our, our clients and different partners that we work with, but also students. And I'm here to share my view because often this space can feel like the Wild West, especially without regulation or really clear standards around what is ESG, what is impact, what is sustainable. Um, the winners in this space will be firms who do have a strong view. So what we view uh, at Glenmead is that ESG and impact are not equivalent. ESG is just a data set that helps inform investment decisions and in some cases can create sustainable outcomes, perhaps even impact as a byproduct. Um, so ESG data can be as helpful or as not helpful as the quality of those who are integrating it. So um, you know, we see ESG data as helping to identify risks and opportunities for a company, but not necessarily risks and opportunities for people and planet. I think that's also a really helpful framework, um, thinking about the ESG quality of a public company. But what does it actually mean when you think through that company's impact on people and planet? We might need to get more granular than just ESG quality. So we might use, you know, how will we advance uh impact goals for people and planet, perhaps leveraging those thematic investment strategies that I referenced previously that might have an investment thesis focused on climate innovation or racial equity or financial inclusion. So, you know, we might couple that with 
high impact philanthropy, as well as early stage venture investments that do have a measurable impact where you can really measure that primary uh, benefit to communities and individuals. I think what also influences my work here is that when I was, you know, working in international development, humanitarian work, I worked around impressive monitoring and evaluation specialists. These were folks who got their PhDs in tracking the impact of our development projects. And it's challenging to do. These people want to get their doctorates, right? Um, so my preferred definition, as I said, of impact is tangible outcomes stemming from specific actions. So ESG doesn't equal impact, but I do think it's possible to use investing to create intentional outcomes that could lead to impact. And I know that's a little bit couched, but I think it's important to have those distinctions. It's also highly conceptual, right? I'm speaking to you and perhaps your listeners who've taken coursework and done internships in this space, but what about when I'm speaking to an individual or an organization who's like, this is, you know, uh, alphabet soup and I'm buried in acronyms and I don't even know where you're going with this. We at Glenmead have something called a taxonomy, which is four different investment approaches, integrated, mandated, thematic, high impact concessionary. And each of those pathways is really clearly defined. We don't ask individuals or organizations to choose one pathway. They're basically just four tools that can work in combination with each other. But within each of those is a clear descriptor of how ESG data is being used. Is there an impact outcome, et cetera? So I'll pause there because I know that's a lot of information, but it is a heated, heated debate in the space right now. And I would encourage students interviewing to have a really clear answer for interviews. No, that's super helpful. And I think now it'll be a good point to actually deep dive on impact investing as well as Glenn Means thematic focus and investment approach. So what I'd like to understand is what do you look for while conducting due diligence in, let's say, an impact-oriented public market strategy? And actually, what does a best-in-class public market strategy even look like? Sure. So Glenmead uses a five-pronged evaluation matrix, so five different criteria within our evaluation matrix. And we see these, these as key differentiators for any sustainable and impact strategy. We ask managers to fill out a series of in-depth questions about how they're integrating ESG factors into their investment process, but also their approach to shareholder engagement and what kind of thought leadership they're producing, et cetera. So some of the things we consider, Sharia, would be the impact outcome or the intentionality of a strategy, um, documentation and measurement, how is it reported, how is a, uh, a fund manager proving their process and what they're doing in a consistent way. We look at the underlying data, uh, engagement, as I mentioned, or uh, stewardship, one might say, and then systemization and how that data is being fed back into the investment process. So you learn that a company is going to be issuing a net zero report in two years. How are you integrating that back into the opportunities you see for that specific business model and that company's preparedness for the climate transition? We look at the philosophy, uh, culture, and overall team. So what you see a lot of is perhaps a really stellar investment strategy, but embedded in a much more traditional firm. So, you know, what are we to believe? Are the overall actions of that firm, you know, kind of discounting the work of that specific strategy? Um, I will share one example that brings this to light. Uh, an incredible strategy we were looking at, which will go unnamed, um, just doing a really impressive job on climate um, and integrating ESG considerations throughout their process. But when we looked at the firm, the CEO had been all over the news as a climate denier. 
that's tough for us to reconcile, right? Because how, even if you have like a rock star portfolio manager, how are they being empowered if their CEO is like literally negating everything they're doing, you know, with these, these terrible news headlines. Uh, and then finally, we look at industry connectivity and contribution. So perhaps, uh, especially for an investment manager focused on like a, a less commonly highlighted asset class, like municipal bonds. Are they getting out into the market, speaking on panels, running workshops, training others, uh, producing thought leadership, um, just to make sure that when we're in this nascent space, they're helping to contribute to standards. So we weight these criteria differently depending on the approach employed. So an integrated strategy is not weighted the same as a thematic strategy, which is not weighted the same as what we call our high impact concessionary strategies. I won't share those scores because that's our secret sauce, but I think it has really um, been refined over the last five, six years. Uh, and that's been pretty exciting to see that we have this kind of internal tool to help us be good gatekeepers. In terms of what best in class looks like, I would say a dedicated full-time ESG team with dedicated resources. So this should be 100% of their job, whether it's one person or 20 people um, reporting to the CIO. They should not be reporting to the head of marketing, um, a proprietary approach to ESG data. So we like to see when investment managers couple their research, not just with major third-party data providers like MSCI or Sustainalytics, but also with their own internal materiality mapping. So their proprietary view on what is material to a certain sector, uh, systematized, robust documentation of ESG analysis. So against every name in the portfolio, not just which names you feel like occasionally. And then walking the talk. So if you are a firm that has a whole suite of sustainable strategies, how are you thinking about that throughout your firm? Are you intentionally sourcing more diverse staff? Are you uh, really trying to build diversity into mid and senior levels? Are you setting that zero goals for your firm? And then finally, I'll just say leading the industry, as I mentioned, with thought leadership. So producing podcasts such as this one, short form papers, graphics, whatever, just to help what is the phrase? A rising tide lifts all boats, something like that. Um, so I'll just note, you know, our bar is always getting higher and higher because this industry is getting more and more competitive. And there is a growing impetus to really root out greenwashing, which I think is totally natural. And, you know, I think this is a great transition for my next question. Since you brought up greenwashing, we've all heard of the criticisms that the impact investing industry has faced, you know, such as greenwashing that you just mentioned. So what do you think are the key challenges for the industry? How should uh, they address it? Yeah, it's been an interesting year for uh, anyone who's a sustainable and impact investing professional. Um, so I've thought a lot about this question and Certainly, I've had many conversations with our own, um, you know, our own individuals and organizations we're working with, our partners. Um, it's been a, a lot of fun dealing with a lot of different headlines from anything from Wall Street Journal to New York Times. You know, it's been all over the place. Um, so we've seen a lot of skepticism. And we do believe that some of the skepticism is deserved, especially where mismarketing has occurred. Trust me, I, mean, I look at sustainable investment strategies every day. Um, one is not equal to the other. And I think it's a fun fact when you look at certain studies tracking social media sentiment around this space. So there was a study looking at the mention of ESG on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. And the study found that the term ESG was associated 
with negative sentiment 70% of the time in 2022 versus 42% of the time in 2021. So 42% to 70% let's put it this way, we've been inundated with skepticism in the last year. And there's definitely a reckoning coming. So here's what I anticipate. I anticipate that in 2023 this year, asset managers are going to need to address how their investment strategies stand up against greenwashing. Regulators are coming and asset managers need to be ready. We would not be surprised to see greater governance in the U.S. around ESG-related fund labeling. So just a greater scrutiny and governance around how asset managers are using the terms like ESG, sustainable impact in the name of a fund. We're already seeing this in Europe. Further, wealth managers like Glenmead and consultants will definitely need to assert their proprietary view of what constitutes a sustainable fund and what standards they're applying. So Glenmead's already doing this with our five-pronged matrix and we're constantly tweaking this. I think that wealth managers, if they're not doing that, should be playing catch up, right? Because they're going to need to defend what they consider sustainable and what they don't. And then finally, I think we'll just be riding the wave of anti-ESG rhetoric and actions for a bit. I know that Warden has published a really interesting study on the costs of this anti-ESG rhetoric. I see you nodding your head. Are you familiar with the study? Yes, yes, I've read, I've read this, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just for listeners, this idea that following the passage of anti-ESG rules, there are certain states that refuse to invest with certain financial institutions that had publicly signed on to ESG policies. So um, the states were saying, look, you can't be our underwriters for muni bonds. And thus these states had to then go source their financing for muni bonds elsewhere. Well, the Warden study found that a certain Texas cities would be paying an additional 300 to $500 million on interest in bonds, representing an additional cost on taxpayers and just illustrating how anti-ESG legislation may reduce competition. Now, 300 to $500 million, perhaps not, you know, earth shattering in the scheme of things, but I really think Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, summed it up well. He was just at Davos and he was asked about the impact of anti-ESG political movements on BlackRock and health of the business. He noted that BlackRock had lost $4 billion in outflows, but had gained $400 billion in inflows. In other words, inflows were outpacing outflows by around 100 times per year. So this data gives me comfort, but also reinforces the reality that the integration of ESG data has really solidified as an investment discipline, and it's not going anywhere, even if it's ripe for some reform. And so since you mentioned riding the wave of this anti-ESG rhetoric, where do we see impact investing, let's say, in the next decade? So I I thought about two predictions I have for the space. Um, And I'll say this is really for sustainable investing. So more public markets focused, just to distinguish for your your listeners, but definitely some applications to private markets. So I think one, we'll see more research linking social criteria to financial materiality. I know we've already had a huge focus in this space on gender and racial equity, but depth and robustness of data remains a concern. But we are seeing increasing expansion of research. We've already seen quite a bit on gender equity. Warden has really led the charge here, which is exciting, looking at performance and diversity on boards and in senior management, finding a linkage between higher return on equity, for example, um, lower risk associated with gender diverse boards. Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse have issued similar research. Um, So I also think it's interesting because Vice 
Dean of the ESG Initiative, Vitold Hanesh, has also found that companies with higher social engagement, so making an effort to engage stakeholders, um, perhaps entering a new country, starting a new, um, even if it's like an oil and gas company working in Papua New Guinea, for example, making sure that you're managing your stakeholders can lead to less social risk and eventually result in higher valuations than companies with lower social capital. I think we saw this honestly all throughout 2020 and 2021, companies who were more upfront about offering sick leave, about being conscious that parents had to manage as caretakers, right? Um, elder care and child care, CEOs who are really authentic and followed through on DEI commitments and promises. Like we saw higher employee retention and less turnover. We'll see what happens with the value of this S, these S considerations in a recessionary environment, but we're long-term investors and we do believe that S considerations are financially material. So second prediction I have is that we're just going to see a growing demand for thematic strategies, which I've referenced a few times. So this is really investors who are seeking all asset allocation to advance one goal, whether it's investing in climate solutions or closing health inequities or seeking to close the racial wealth gap. So I do see this distinction between sustainable and impact investing as I've gotten into a bit, but I, I want to really emphasize the value of thematic strategies as having the greatest potential for outcomes. And that's really exciting. So this would be the difference between a, a retail investor investing in one company, tech company, and saying, I want you to change your approach to AI programs so that there's less racial bias. Versus that retail investor joining a coalition of investors worth trillions of dollars, asking all large cap companies to ascribe to standards that root out racial bias in tech. Um, and these investments are thematic, part of a thematic strategy, and really have teeth and scale. And that's exciting to me. So those are just my two predictions. I, you know, interesting to get them out there, but we've also found this space can be a bit unpredictable. So you'll have to check me on those in a year. And shifting gears now, I think lastly, since this is a social impact based podcast um, and given the nature of our listeners, I was wondering if you could actually talk about a moment in your career where you actually thought you were making the world truly a better place. Yeah, I appreciate that. I've definitely gone through, I think, some a lot of soul searching as a warden student to figure out the right place to plug in. I never envisioned myself working in public markets. Uh, just because of the huge push on, I think, PEVC at Warden and in MBA programs. And I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I do think that my my team works as a startup within a larger firm. And that's been really exciting to me. Not only am I learning how to build sustainable and impact investing platforms, but I'm also learning how to build a business. So that's been incredible. But I also just think it's generally getting to work with our clients, um, you know, multi-generational families who I'm working with represent a lot of family dynamics and you may be working with a range of generations. So I'm envisioning being in a room where the grandparents, you know, have brought along the grandchildren who really don't want to be there, don't want to have anything to do perhaps with the family wealth, which may have been earned in ways that the grandchildren don't agree with. But having sustainable and impact investing strategies to tap into to help really um, press pause and reassess the family's legacy what themes they want to pursue has been incredibly inspiring. And it gets the grandchildren often to the table. Now, not all of, you know, I'm not arguing everyone in our generation has the same goals, 
But finding that way to bridge the gap in generations has been really meaningful. Uh, one family I worked with, the grandparents, you know, really just wanted to focus on market rate returns. Just like whatever we do, no concessions, right? And the grandchildren expressed urgency and a desire to invest in climate tech ASAP. So being able to take those desires and find a way to merge them, given that the majority of the strategies on our platform overwhelmingly are seeking risk-adjusted market rate returns, which is incredibly powerful. It's like that grandkid looking up at me just saying, like, wow, I didn't know that my money could be doing this. And this makes me want to be a part of these family discussions and makes me think about the legacy I can have. The last thing I'll just say as a woman in finance is it's truly a privilege to have a seat at these tables. Sometimes I just feel like pinch myself that I even have the privilege to be advising these individuals, these foundations, endowments. And I just wonder, you know, if not me, who would be sitting here? So I do say that for anyone who is considering a transition, is considering taking a chance with a new space. Um, I think that, you know, you really have to view the different parts of your career as an opportunity to learn whatever you can. You may not know what the end goal will be. You may not know what the next step will be, but um, ultimately I have found that these skills have come together um, and it's really just been an exciting, exciting ride. It's absolutely wonderful to hear how you were able to merge the interests across generations and how far you've come in your in your journey so far. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It was great interacting with you today. Great. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wharton Impact Podcast. If you found this episode interesting, please give us your feedback on the Wharton Social Impact Club's Instagram page and spread the word about us on social media. For more content on the intersection of business and impact, please subscribe to our podcast. This is your host, Shaura Malhotra, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.